I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 5 from verse 17 to verse 26. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralysed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Um, Just before we hear from Jimbo, I'm going to pray. So if you're someone who prays, please do join me. Dear Lord, as Jimbo speaks to us now, please help us to listen well and to be receptive to what you want us to learn. And please let Jimbo speak clearly and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Uh, well, it's good to see you here today. Uh, We just had read out for us a section from Luke's biography of Jesus' life. Uh, And I don't know if you noticed, but as we had that read out for us, we heard some pretty strange stuff. In fact, I want to suggest to you today that what we heard was not only strange, but it was ridiculous. In fact, what we heard today was offensive. Uh, We just heard about some paraplegic guy, okay? And this paraplegic guy who hasn't walked in years gets picked up by his mates on a mat and they carry him to a house, they carry him up onto the roof of that house They pull apart the tiles on the roof, make a hole in the roof, and then they winch their friend down through this hole in the roof in front of some Jewish rabbi named Jesus, who then has the audacity to tell the man to get up and go home. Are you serious? Isn't this just superstition or nonsense in an age of scientific reason? We hear it all the time, don't we? Uh, We've finally been freed from the shackles of the Dark Ages and the poster boys of New Atheism have finally buried religion once and for all with a powerful shovel of science. Uh, Let's look first at what Richard Dawkins has to say. As a scientist, I'm hostile to fundamentalist religion because it actively debauches the scientific enterprise. It teaches us not to change our minds and not to want to know exciting things that are available to be known. It subverts science and saps the intellect. But what about Sam Harris? Given that faith is generally nothing more than the permission religious people give one another to believe things strongly without evidence, a conflict between science and religion is unavoidable. But what about the late Christopher Hitchens? Today, 
the least educated of my children knows much more about the natural order than any of the founders of religion. All attempts to reconcile faith with science and reason are consigned to failure and ridicule for precisely these reasons. These are big claims that scientists are making. Big claims that if Christianity can't justify, either marginalises what Christians have to say or makes Christians out to be liars, an evil force in this world that needs to be silenced. Well, today what I want to suggest to you is that perhaps the marketing claims of the new atheist department have been a little bit overstretched, okay? That perhaps it's not that easy to dismiss what the Bible has to say to us. And so today to do that, we're going to look at this issue from a number of different perspectives. Firstly, we're going to look at how the battle between science and religion has been portrayed historically. Then secondly, what we're going to do is look at the philosophical claims of science. That is, what is it that science claims and how we know things, and how does it match up with what the Bible claims and how the Bible claims that we know things? And then after we've looked at those meta-questions, we're then going to apply that to the topic of miracles, which we heard out, read for us out from Luke chapter 5 earlier today. Okay, but before we do that, let's begin with a story. Okay? Everybody loves a good story, don't they? Well, once upon a time, uh, the world lived in darkness. Okay? And back then, people were pretty dumb and stupid, but they were generally pretty happy because they just didn't know any better. Okay? And in those days, uh, big powerful institutions like the Big Bad Church oppressed people and discouraged them from investigating things like science because who knows what would happen if people investigated science. They may actually begin to think for themselves. And if that happened, well then, maybe the church would lose some of its power. And in those times, one man stood up. One man rose up to save humanity. One man named Galileo Galilei. Uh, For those of you who don't remember, Galileo was an Italian physicist, mathematician, engineer, astronomer and philosopher. The only thing he didn't do was be a ninja turtle. Uh, And he lived during the Renaissance. And because of his huge contribution to the scientific enterprise, uh, people today refer to him as the father of modern science. Uh, Most people know that he's the one who invented the telescope and actually proved that the ancient understandings of the universe were wrong that in fact Copernicus was right in stating that the sun was the centre of the universe and that the planets revolved around the sun. However, just as famous as Galileo's science was Galileo's famous clashes with the Catholic Church, who labelled him a heretic at the time. And many popular descriptions of Galileo depict him as this man who stood up to the evils of the church in a time of ignorance and who was ultimately persecuted because of his beliefs. However, I want to suggest to you that that's actually a very gross oversimplification of what actually happened. You see, in reality, uh, Galileo was actually a friend of the Pope and many of the clergy of the day actually accepted his theories about the sun being at the centre of the universe. And while religion did play a small role in his ultimate demise, uh, recent re-readings of the primary evidence, the actual historical documents from the day, indicate that his persecution was due more to the way that he presented his theories than the actual content of his theories. You see, the way that he presented his theories was by insulting the Pope and calling him a simple and stupid, uneducated fool. 
In many ways, Galileo had an abrasive personality. It was a bit like Kevin Rudd. Okay? <laughs> Even if Galileo did have some good ideas, ultimately they were shot down and discredited, not because of the content of his theories, but because of his rude persona. And, and often over time, the stories of the battles between science and religion have taken on this new idea, haven't they? They've been reshaped to take on a powerful meta-narrative, an overarching story that argues that science and religion have always been in conflict, that science is always progressive while religion is always oppressive. Now, I don't want to stand here and claim for a minute that Christians, people claiming to believe in God, haven't done stupid things against the name of science. But overwhelmingly, it is Christians who have fostered the scientific discovery and encouraged the study of the universe precisely because of their belief in a God of order. But since the rise of modernity, people have reshaped those stories of the past to create a powerful reinterpretation of history, which they then use to oppose religion and offer science as a better way forward. But this assumes many things, doesn't it? It assumes that science actually is a better way of knowing stuff. In fact, that science is the only valid way of knowing stuff. And so that leads us to our next question, which is, how is it that we actually know stuff? Uh, One of the big problems with science and religion is their claims about what humans can actually know uh, and how we know what we know, what often people like to refer to as epistemology, for those of you who like big words. Now, what I want you to do is to turn to the person next to you and in one minute, I want you guys to come up with as many different possible ways as you can think of that we know stuff, okay? You've got one minute. How many different ways can you know stuff? Now, we might stop there for a minute. We could keep going. Uh, but hopefully you remember uh, the scientific method. Okay? So hopefully you're not that far out of high school science that you forget how science works. Uh, but basically, it's pretty easy. First of all, you start off with an observation. Your observation could be something like, you know, I've observed that it's been raining a lot. I've noticed that the grass has been growing a lot as well. Okay, that's your observation. So based on your observation, you go away and you make what's called a hypothesis, an idea. And your hypothesis might be that rain causes grass to grow more than normal. So you get your hypothesis and you create an experiment or a test in which you can test that hypothesis. So what you might do is you might go out and you measure the rain when it ha- sorry, the grass when it has been raining and the grass when it hasn't been raining. Okay? Based on your experiment, you then go and get a set of results. Your results may show you that when it hasn't been raining, that the grass only grows five centimeters per week but that when it has been raining, it grows 15 centimetres per week. That's your results. So based on your results, you then go away and make a conclusion. 
And your conclusion could be something like, rain causes grass to grow three times more than normal. Okay? That's the scientific method. You start off with an observation, you make a hypothesis, you test that hypothesis, you get some results, and you make a conclusion or you modify your original hypothesis. Okay? That's the scientific method. Uh, but do you recognize what the scientific method assumes? The scientific method assumes a number of things. You see, it assumes that things in nature operate under consistent laws. It assumes that things in this world don't happen randomly. That if I throw an apple up in the air, the apple's not going to kind of stay up there one time, or another time it's not going to fly around the room, or another time it's not going to take off into outer space. You see, the laws of gravity are consistent. And we may be able to, to describe how gravity works, but we can't explain why it's consistent, why it has to happen the same way every time. Secondly, the scientific method also assumes that you can subject something to an experiment to see how it's going to behave. That is, science relies on replication or reliability. That is, if I do an experiment to see how the grass grows one day, science demands that someone else, using the same set of conditions in another part of the world, should be able to get the same results using the same experiment. And if they don't get the same results, then either they did the experiment wrong or my initial hypothesis was wrong. And thirdly, science assumes that we can create true conclusions from our data. You see, science assumes that we have all of the information that we need in order to make a valid conclusion. But take, for example, our grass growing analogy. You see, we've assumed that the rain is what has caused the grass to grow. But what if the reason why the rain caused the grass to grow was not because of the rain itself, but because of the cloud cover? Maybe on those weeks when it rained more, there was more cloud cover, and that cloud cover blocked the sun's ultraviolet radiation, which allowed the grass to avoid being burnt. You see, we've assumed that the rain is the causative factor, but there could be a number of different factors associated with that which caused the grass to grow or not grow. You see, all that science can do is describe associations between two events. And it can give you probable theories and very good theories about how those events are related to each other. But it cannot give you definitive information because science cannot know all of the factors involved in every situation. So how do these limits to the scientific method help us as we think about the idea of the Bible and what God has to say? Well, firstly, I want to suggest to you that it's the Christian God who provides the basis for our modern expectation of consistency in the world. You see, the Roman and the Greek gods uh, were petty and cruel. They were vindictive. They would kind of wake up, on bed, wake up on the wrong side of the bed and do whatever they felt like that day. And because of that, you couldn't actually predict how the world would work. But the God of the Bible is a God of order and not of disorder. And because he is one, he's not fighting different gods, he's not changing his mind all the time, and he is consistent. And so we can expect his creation to act in a consistent way. And so, therefore, rather than science being opposed to Christianity, in many ways, science arose out of Christianity. Secondly, uh, the claims of science are largely untestable by modern scientific inquiry. You see, we cannot hop in a TARDIS and go back and see what actually happened during the events of the Bible. We can't recreate the Big Bang and see what happened, even though the Large Hadron Collider is trying to do that. Trying to do that. We can't actually see whether the, the ten plagues occurred on Egypt or whether Moses actually walked people through the Red Sea. 
And in many ways, that's how we rely on many things though, isn't it? You see, when you turn on Channel 10 at 5 o'clock, you'll get the eyewitness news. You yourself trust that what happens on Channel 10 Eyewitness News is an accurate representation of the day's events. But you weren't there. You can't prove that what happens actually happened. And you rely on other people, eyewitnesses, to pass on that information to you. You don't doubt the veracity of it, but you trust reliable witnesses to mediate information to you that you cannot know on your own. Thirdly, though, we need to be aware of making deductions and accepting them as the only truth based on our scientific data. You see, we cannot exclude alternative explanations for the results that we have. And one good example of this is the historicity of the Bible. You see, for years, academic scholars had been arguing that uh, the author John, who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, wasn't a reliable eyewitness of the Bible. Because in John chapter 9, he talks about a pool of Siloam where Jesus does a miracle. And for years, archaeologists have been digging around Jerusalem and they'd found no evidence of this pool of Siloam. And so what they concluded from their lack of results was that therefore John was an unreliable witness and hadn't actually seen Jesus firsthand, that he came along later on and made up stuff. And that was the main consensus amongst all academics until 2004, when the Israeli Parks Authority were digging around to clean up some sewers, and as they did that, they found some stones as they dug up a bit further, they actually uncovered the long-lost pool of Siloam. You see, this brings us to a really important principle that we need to remember. And that is that an absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. An absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. Okay? It may be that, but it's not necessarily that. You see, so when we hear of miracles, we cannot exclude them just because we can't repeat them or that we personally haven't seen them with our own eyes. It may mean that we just haven't seen miracles because they are unique events. And so some things are testable by science, but other things are not. You see, I cannot recreate the assassination of Julius Caesar. We can't recreate the same set of circumstances in another part of the world and get the same result. And so therefore, I cannot test his assassination. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen, did it? And it's the same with miracles. You see, by their very nature, they're not everyday occurrences, which means that we can't expect them to be repeatable at will whenever we'd like them. So let's return to our example of Galileo from earlier. You see, Galileo is held up as an example of science versus religion. But as we saw, that conflict was actually due to other factors. And in many ways, the problem that religion had was with Galileo's science, not science itself. Because you see, at that time, the problem was not that the church hated science, the problem was that the church had done too good a job of loving science. You see, it wasn't Galileo's science that they loved, it was actually Aristotle's theory of the universe. You see, thousands of years earlier, Aristotle, who was not a Christian, he was just a Greek philosopher, had argued that the earth was the centre of the universe. And as Christians had tried to engage with the science, they thought, well, that actually seems to be a fairly reasonable explanation of the world around us. And so the problem was not that the church was anti-science, the problem was that they just wedded themselves to Aristotle's theory rather than Galileo's theory. And so let's have a read of how historian and scientist Kristen Burkett describes this. Now, it's a bit of a long quote, but hang in there because there's some really good stuff. The great Aristotelian synthesis... Uh, left medieval Christianity irrevocably tied to an ultimately faulty philosophy. 
By the time the flaws in the philosophy were demonstrated, the upholders of the system, supposed to be Christian, were so steeped in Aristotelianism, they were unable to cope with the changes. The result was that Christianity was discredited for something that had nothing to do with it. The same danger potentially lies before us with theories of modern science, if we're not careful. Modern empirical science is an excellent route to knowledge about our physical universe, and most likely a lot of what it promotes is true. Yet its very success lies in the contingent and revisable nature of its theories. Empirical science is a system which is only ever probably true, and deliberately so, for by nature it must allow itself to be open to constant revision in the light of new evidence. Science advances by rejection of the old under scrutiny of the new, and that is the strength and the real value of scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge is about us trying to put something under a microscope to observe it. And that's okay if you're trying to look at something, an object. But it's completely inadequate if you're trying to get to know about someone. You see, you could put me in a CT scanner and find out what I'm made up of, but that would be completely inadequate for getting to know who I am, for understanding what I like and what kind of things I'm passionate about. And that's why it's so important for us to recognise that if there is a God, then we don't just need to know facts about him, but we need to know him relationally, just like we'd know our family or our friends. And so the message of the Bible is that one man in history, Jesus of Nazareth, claimed to have been with God, claimed to have been God, and claims to reveal God to us. And so the question I want to ask you is, are you so busy trying to put God under your microscope that you failed to realise that he's the one who puts you under his examining eye? So how does that all apply to miracles then? How does all that stuff we learn about history and philosophy apply to this crazy story about a paraplegic man getting up and walking in Luke chapter 5? You know, don't miracles break the regular, consistent laws of the universe? And isn't this just the stuff of ancient mythology and flying spaghetti monsters? Uh, Well, as we turn our attention to the topic of miracles, uh, it's helpful for us to think about how we define miracles. You see, I think for many of us, we would have a definition of miracles uh, that comes from an ancient uh, source, a guy called David Hume from a few hundred years ago, who defined miracles as a violation of the laws of nature. That is, uh, the natural world is all kind of running along, regular and clock-like, and a miracle is when someone comes along and interferes with the regular running of the universe and tinkers with the cogs. Now, one of the problems is that this assumes a view of God that isn't necessarily consistent with how the Bible portrays him. You see, I think for many of us, we have a view of God which is called a deist view. That is, we view God as a cosmic watchmaker. Okay? And so if there is a God, he made the universe like a watch. And he wound it up, he sets it going, and he places it on a bench, and then he leaves it. And it ticks along by itself independently. And so if we do see a miracle, it's because the watchmaker has come back and he's interfering with the cogs, which was already going along quite fine without him. But that's not how the Bible describes the God of the universe. You see, according to the Bible, 
If the universe is a watch, then every time that second hand ticks along, that only happens because the watchmaker is actively moving it. It says in Psalm 147, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens a cry. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. You see, in the Bible, God is portrayed as active in the universe at every single moment. And so instead of being a cosmic watchmaker, I want to suggest to you that God in the Bible is more like the cosmic Johnny Ive from Apple. You see, he's made this world like an Apple Watch. And I don't know if you've been reading the news reports, but apparently the new Apple Watch needs to be plugged in daily. It can't go for more than 24 hours without being plugged into a power source. It needs to be paired to an iPhone so it can connect to an internet. It doesn't have any ability to connect to the internet on its own. And it needs regular updates from Apple to keep its software working. It needs to be connected to its maker regularly. And in many ways, I want to suggest to you that that is what the God of the Bible is like. The universe is not self-sufficient, but it keeps ticking along only because he is working to this very day to keep it going. And if for one second he decided to stop working, then this universe would cease to exist. And so in this biblical view of God, our miracles are not God intervening in his universe and meddling with it, but miracles are just God doing something in a different way to the way that he normally does it. Uh, but let's go back to that commonly accepted definition of a miracle from 18th century philosopher David Hume. Uh, let's look at his quote in full. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as a firm and alterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle, from the very nature of the fact, is an entire and an argument from experience as can be imagined. It is no miracle that a man, seemingly in good health, should die on a sudden, because such a kind of death, although more unusual than any other, has yet been frequently observed to happen. But it is a miracle that a dead man should come to life, because that has never been observed in any age or country. There must, therefore, be a uniform experience against every miraculous event, otherwise the event would not merit that appellation. Now, there's a lot of big words in there, so I'll break it down for you engineers. Um, hey, I love engineers. Um, Hume argues that the way we know the laws of nature is through our experience. That is, I experience that every time I let something go, it falls to the ground. And therefore, the laws of nature are based on our communal experience. And Hume then argues that miracles are things that have never been observed at any time or any place before. Okay? He says that we've never, ever, ever experienced anything miraculous and there must be a uniform lack of experience of any miraculous event. Otherwise, it's not a miracle. It's just a very rare or uncommon event like young guys dropping dead. So in the end, Hume's argument against miracles is that we experience stuff and that as far as he knows, we haven't experienced miracles and therefore miracles don't exist. Okay? Do you see how what he's arguing is actually just from his own experience? He's not arguing, he didn't experience Julius Caesar dying 
and yet he'd have to claim that it's a miraculous event because he's never experienced it. But he's claiming that as far as no one else has ever experienced it, then it's not a miracle. Now, when people talk about miracles in the Bible, I often hear a few common objections. Uh, one of the objections that I hear is that as the laws of nature have grown, as we've grown in our understanding, that's actually removed the space for miracles. So as scientific knowledge advances and we know more stuff, the shroud of ignorance decreases, allowing less room or even no room for the miraculous. So in the past, when we didn't know how stuff worked, we could attribute things like eclipses to God or to some kind of miraculous event. But now that we know stuff, we have no need for those miraculous explanations. And so rare events like eclipses are no longer signs from God, but scientifically describable events. But as we saw earlier, remember, the Christian God is actively involved in his universe at every single point. And so it's not surprising that he can mix up or change the way that he does things. He can do it with his left hand instead of his right. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia book, uh, illustrates it in a really helpful fashion. He says, imagine on a Saturday you took $50 and you put that $50 in an envelope. Then on Sunday you come along with another $50 and you put that $50 into the same envelope. The laws of maths allow you to predict that on Monday when you show up to that envelope, you should find how much? 50. <laughs> how much should you find? 100. But what if you did find 50? What would you conclude? Someone's think the 50. You wouldn't assume that somehow a miracle had happened. You'd assume that actually... That the, would you assume that the laws of maths had been broken? Well, no... Lewis says, actually, it's much more reasonable to conclude that a thief has come along and stolen your $50 and you need to go call the cops. And so he says, furthermore, it would be ludicrous to claim that the laws of arithmetic made it impossible to believe in the existence of such a thief or the possibility of his intervention. On the contrary, it is the normal workings of those laws that have exposed the existence and activity of the thief. That is, it's the regularity of God's usual workings in the world that draws attention to when he chooses to do things in a different way. It's just like if for 364 days of the year I decide to cook spaghetti bolognese for my wife as I did last night. Okay? But then when I go and take her out for that special meal one night of the year, it draws attention to something, doesn't it? It shows her that perhaps it's her birthday or it's our anniversary. And so when... We draw attention to things. In the Bible, the miracles are not just done as random party tricks, but they always have a significance. They always show us something particular about God and a unique stage of history. And so we must remember that what Hume actually said when he argued against miracles was not that miracles are impossible, because to do so is logically and intellectually empty. He's actually defined himself out of miracles. But what Hume was claiming was that miracles were very, very improbable based on our experience of the world. And so as we think about our experience, we need to make sure that we've put the miraculous event into the right category. You see, if I asked you how common is it for there to be fireworks on Sydney Harbour, you'd have to say it's pretty rare. In fact, it's less than 1% that you'll see, on any particular day that you'll see fireworks on Sydney Harbour, it's less than 1%. But if I redefine that category or redefine that class to ask you how common is it for you to see fireworks on Sydney Harbour on New Year's Eve, well then actually the probability would go from less than 1% to 
to almost 100%. You see, depending on what category or what class you place an event in will determine how frequently you think it is likely to happen. And so if we think about the resurrection of Jesus, on initial glance, it seems quite improbable, doesn't it? Quite unlikely, if he's just another human like you or I. Because as far as we've experienced, humans don't come back from the dead. But if we put Jesus into the category of being human, but also the Son of God who is promised to be the Messiah and the firstborn from among the dead, then that's a unique category which we have very little experience of. And so in that category, it may be completely normal for people who claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah and the long-awaited firstborn from the dead to rise from the dead. Secondly, though, your belief in miracles is also tainted or shaped by what you think the purpose of that miracle was. You see, if I told you that your friend had quit uni and was now living in a tree, most of you would think I'm pretty crazy. But... If you knew that your friend was a passionate environmentalist and you just heard on the radio that Tony Abbott had declared he was going to chop down an entire national park, then you'd be expecting your friend to act in a way that was consistent with what you knew of them. And so you would think it's much more probable that your friend was living in a tree than if I said that to some random outside. So if you know the purpose of an event, then it may not seem as strange or as unlikely. And so I want to suggest to you that as you look at the Bible's descriptions of miracles, they are designed to show you something, to draw attention to particular things. Jesus' miracles are not just party tricks, but he deliberately does things that only previously God had done. And he does these things to show us that he is God. In the case of the paraplegic man, which we heard from Luke chapter 5, Now, this story is not some random trick about some mates who decided to winch their friend down through a hole. Because, you see, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, had spoken about a day in the future, a day that was coming when people would see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Behold your God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus does these things. He does this healing of the paraplegic man to show us that he is God, that he is God coming to save and rescue his people. And as this passage shows us, what is ridiculous and offensive about this passage is not that it's miraculous, but if you look at the story itself, what is offensive and ridiculous about this passage is that Jesus is offering and claiming that he can forgive your sins. Science cannot ultimately disprove a miracle. Okay? Science can claim that they're very rare or very unlikely. And I want to say that's exactly the point. Miracles were always designed to be rare events. If they were common, they wouldn't stand out from the rest of ordinary life and they'd have no significance. But miracles are just God choosing to do things in this world in a different way to the way in which he normally does things. And so I want to suggest to you that there is no substantial ability to disprove miracles. And I want to suggest to you that trying to claim that miracles are impossible is actually being intellectually dishonest. But I want to finish up today uh, with a quick warning. Okay? Now I think for many of us, uh, that warning is that science can be a smokescreen, can't it? Dr. Tim Keller says, 
Many complex factors lead a person to belief or disbelief in God. Some are personal experiences, some are intellectual, and some are social. Sociologists of knowledge have shown that our peer group and our primary relationships shape our beliefs much more than we want to admit. And scientists, just like non-scientists, are very affected by the beliefs and attitudes of the people from whom they want to respect. It's easy for us to hide behind science, isn't it? Just like that religious person hides behind their Bible. And I want to suggest to you that, sure, if the evidence doesn't add up, then come on, let's have a chat about it later, and let's chat about the evidence. But what I want to ask you is, how much evidence would be enough for you? Or are you just using science as a safety blanket to avoid the claims that Jesus is making about himself and about you? Today we've seen that historically science and Christianity are not opposed to each other. We've seen that the philosophical claims of science are not contradicted by, but they're actually compatible with what the Bible says. And so I want to ask you today, are you sticking your head in the sand? Are you trying to ignore the issue? And maybe you actually haven't had a look at the evidence for Jesus as an adult yourself. Maybe you heard stuff growing up at school or from friends or from parents, but you haven't looked at the historical evidence for Jesus yourself and seen whether it's credible. If that's you, then I want to encourage you to do something about that this semester. Find out this semester whether Jesus is actually legit. Here at the EU, we've got a number of different ways that you can do that. Okay, the first way is to come back next week to next week's public meeting. Okay, same time, same place, right here. And my colleague Patty is going to take us through some of the historical evidence for whether Jesus rose from the dead. Is this actually reliable what Christians claim that someone came back to life as the Lord of the universe? Don't just take my word, but come back and next week let's think about these claims for ourselves. But perhaps you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. Okay? Maybe you'd like to ask some of your burning questions more personally in a more tutorial style format where you can hear some evidence and ask some questions and go backwards and forwards. If that's you, then what I want to encourage you to do is to grab the form in your outline, the white little form that says, Who is Jesus? Uh, and we'll hear about the Who is Jesus course in a little bit. But what I want to claim to you is that this is a great opportunity for three weeks to come along and find out whether Jesus existed and what he was on about. Okay? It will try and give you the best possible information. I'll be running one of those courses, and you can come along and find out what Jesus actually had to say and ask your questions in an interactive format. But the third, and what I want to recommend to you as the best way to find out whether this is legit, is not just to read about the historical Jesus and what other people have said about him, but to actually read the primary source for yourself. To actually hear what Jesus has to say about himself. And so why don't you read six short passages, like the one we read today, from Luke's biography of Jesus' life, so you can look at the primary evidence on your own. We have these useful copies of Luke's biography called Uncover here at the EU, which are designed to help you read about Jesus for yourself and with a friend. You can write notes on it, you can uh, ask questions. And so if that's something you're interested in, can I encourage you to take out your Connect card and in the comments section just write the word Uncover in the comments section. And someone from the EU or your friend who brought you today will give you a copy so you can read the primary evidence of Jesus for yourself. Don't use science as a way to kind of stick your fingers in your ears or bury your head in the sand over this issue. And don't take the intellectually lazy way out, okay? 
There's enough smart people on both sides of this debate uh, to show us that it's maybe not as easy as you first thought it was. You can't dismiss the claims of Jesus that quickly. And so my question for you is, what's the next step that you need to take? And how are you going to uncover the truth about Jesus?